You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining us today is State Representative Andrew Fink. He represents Hillsdale and Branch counties in the Michigan State Legislature. Uh, Representative Fink, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Josh. We've got a full agenda today. The legislature has certainly been busy since the last time we talked. And so I want to start with what is still in everyone's mind, the upcoming election and some bills as far as election reform goes that just got passed. About this time last year, actually exactly a year from tomorrow, that y'all passed some election reform bills and the governor vetoed them. Governor issued a statement then. I vetoed the legislation that would perpetuated the big lie or made it harder for Michiganders to vote. Well, times are changing and they're changing fast as we're approaching another election here. Governor Whitmer is ready to face the voters and has decided to negotiate with the legislature on some of these issues. So a package of four voting bills, that's House Bills 4491, 6071, and Senate Bills 311 and 8, all passed the legislature and it was reported there's a deal with the governor that she would support them and sign them into law. I'll go for our listeners very quickly through just the basics of what these bills would do and then get your comments. Uh, 4491, that has the county clerks update the qualified voter files based on lists of deceased individuals monthly, uh, requires a secretary of state approval for absentee ballot uh, envelope containers, requiring the pre-processing of absentee ballots on the Sunday and Monday before election day, and requiring inspectors to be very precise in how they're recording the ballots they're counting, the ballots that are being objected to, they're challenged, not open, set aside, all these things. The next bill, 6071, it would give flexibility of polling places. You keep priority for government buildings and nonprofit buildings, but would allow, in certain cases, private spaces like conference and event facilities to be used for polling. And this two Senate bills, 8 and 311, deal with ballots for service members who are abroad and sets up standards to allow them to receive and return their ballots electronically, establishing a web portal and things like that. Late Thursday afternoon, the governor's office confirmed that there was a deal. Her, her spokesperson said, quote, we have a deal with the legislature. Governor Whitmer has always said that she will work with anyone to get things done and put Michiganders first. When it comes to election reforms, our goal is to always uphold Michiganders' constitutional rights to have their voices heard in a safe and secure election. So it looks like these four bills will become law. Uh, what are your thoughts? Are, are you surprised that we got this deal with the governor on board? It is kind of comical, Josh. As you already suggested, the governor's vetoed several of these concepts, in some cases a couple of times, the removal of dead voters, for instance. And yeah, the reason she's always given has been sort of a vague, uh, implicit allegation that you are lying if you think that not having uh, dead people on the voter rolls is important. Or in, in many other cases, she's a- accused uh, the supporters of these bills, which in their previous forms have passed the legislature, uh, in some cases unanimously, uh, meaning all the Democrats uh, in the legislature voted for them too. She's, she's accused everybody who supported them of being racist in some cases. So uh, I do think she's eating some crow here. Um, I think the most important piece is the removal of the dead voters. That was the the initial intent of 4491. And yes, I think you mentioned that it it has the county clerks removing dead voters on a monthly schedule, but the schedule increases as the election day approaches to uh, every couple of weeks for a few weeks and then daily uh, for the last couple of weeks before an election. And I think there's language, if I, I can't quote it to you, it's essentially requiring clerks to make their best effort to catch any ballots that are not uh, of somebody who has died since receipt, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, happens in a, in a statewide election, probably several hundred people, you know, die between the day that uh, absentee ballots become available under our constitution 40 days before the election uh, and when the election actually happens. So 
I think those are really important steps. Um, obviously, there are. I mean, the the military voting one is is perhaps the one that that conceptually was more difficult for uh, for some folks to get behind. The major difference maker there to me is the fact that it, limiting it to military personnel uh, with uh, what's referred to as cat card, although a, a colleague of mine who's also a former service member pointed out to me that cat card is like saying SAT test or ACT test, where you're saying the uh, the word that you already have an initial for there, but common access card. Um, you know, military members uh, are able to communicate, you know, all kinds of sensitive information across the globe uh, through their clearances and CAC uh, usage, um, medical you know, tactical, strategic information. So that that being the limit of uh, of the electronic receipt made a difference to me. Um, and we'll of course have the chance to review this if it if it seems to be a problem. But having heard testimony from some uh, former Republican clerks about the difficulty of, in some cases, getting a military member his ballot in time uh, to get it returned, even when the clerk's office sends it out promptly and the service member returns it immediately looking to get all of the service members' votes counted, I, I do think is worthwhile. So uh, that, that I think, was probably the most difficult one conceptually. But yeah, otherwise, again, I think the governor is, for the most part, having to eat some crow on this, knowing that chain of custody for absentee ballots, security, as much security for them as possible, it only makes sense. And her efforts to resist it up to this point are, I guess, now kind of coming up against reality. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Andrew Fink with us. A pair of bills that just passed, the Senate is going to have a likely impact on some of our listeners. Auto prices on the rise. Consumers have certainly taken note of that. Uh, well, one factor that contributes to prices, at least here in Michigan, is our sales and use tax. Both the sales and the use taxes don't factor in manufacturer rebates. So consumers, if they get a rebate, are actually paying tax on the purchase price that they're not actually paying instead of the purchase price minus the rebate. Well, House Bills 4939 and 4940 would fix this whole in the tax code, but not at a low cost. The state estimates that it'll lose anywhere from 25 to $31 million in tax revenue. That's the Senate Fiscal Agency's latest report from February. But the bill's accounting would, in effect, hold the school aid fund harmless. So they wouldn't lose any money. Any additional money that they would have lost would come from the state's general fund. But for consumers, this is a tax decrease uh, when they're buying automotives. So, you know, you voted for this bill back in November. There's some very small amendments. It looks like it'll go back to you on the House, but tell me about this this side of things. Certainly prices have gone up even more since you voted on this last year. Do you still plan to support it? What's kind of the impetus behind this legislation? Josh, I hadn't uh, been following this one for the last you know 11 months or, or whatever the di- difference is since uh, when we voted on it last. So I have not seen what changes uh, the Senate may have made to it. So reserving that uh, that with that, with that kind of concept in, uh, held in abeyance, I, I would expect to, to continue to support it. And there are a couple of reasons for it, I think. One is um, it is difficult to uh, decline to reduce a, a person's taxes. You know, our state budget this year is $76 billion. We haven't even appropriated all of it. Whether we need to or not is, is an open question in my mind. Anyway, the point is, if you can reduce a person's taxes when you think the state has sufficient revenue to do the services that the citizens should expect from it, uh, it's difficult to say, no, I'm not going to do that. And then the other thing is, like, the the taxes are obviously a percentage, you know, um, our sales tax is, tax is 6%. Probably not overall, you know, in the main, in the main case, driving, uh, you know, a huge 
not a huge driver in the number of total vehicles sold uh, or, or whatever good it is, but um, it probably it is a marginal effect. And so if the real cost of the vehicle after the rebate, I mean, what essentially what the the market rate for the vehicle is, is lower than the sticker price or whatever, it makes sense to have the taxes reflect the actual cost. You know, the, that's the actual market price point. And so I think that having the taxes reflect that makes a lot of sense. You know, it's it's something of an imperfect system, but that was kind of my reaction to it a year ago. And again, pending, you know, reviewing whatever the Senate has done to it, uh, that'll probably continue to be my approach here. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Uh, Last time we talked about the spending deal from uh, back in July and everyone was up in arms about some of that with state spending money on special interest projects that confusing everyone, citizens and lawmakers alike. Well, there's there's some more uh, drama with spending more state politics. Representative Thomas Albert, who represents District 86, just east of Grand Rapids, including Kent and Ionia counties, he was the chair of the House Preparations Committee uh, until last Wednesday. He resigned, saying that he's at odds with GOP leadership in the legislature about basic fiscal policy and, and state fiscal strategy in regards to a supplemental appropriations bill that passed the legislature to the tune of $1 billion. He put out a statement which reads in part, quote, I cannot support the supplemental budget measure. Now is not the time for the state to commit to spending more money. So we are in the beginning stages of a global recession and don't know how bad the economy will get in the coming months. With all the uncertainty in the economy today, we should not be making new spending commitments. Increased government spending has fueled inflation and played a major part in the economic struggles we face today. And additional spending would just make things worse. So that $1 billion uh, appropriations bill, it's a supplemental bill because, as we discussed, the budget passed in July. It would have given $846 million, so a bulk of that, to the Strategic Outreach and Attraction Reserve Fund, which gives cash grants to companies expanding or moving to Michigan, most notably the Ford uh, investment, $2 billion investment in the state. A lot of uh, cash grants came out of that fund earlier this year when Ford announced that in June. So the supplemental bill passed, um, but there there were 28 no votes in the House. You're with them. What do you see as Michigan's fiscal state uh, in regards to, you know, we've, we've discussed, we've had some surpluses in the past, and there's been questions about what exactly to do with that, um, putting the money to best use, and about this legislation generally, what specifically about this? My objection to it was, in a sense, maybe a little less uh, circumstantial and a little more fundamental, which is... Although I, I had voted to establish the SOAR fund itself because that process is better than the historic process of essentially just appropriating money and then letting the MEDC slash the governor you know choose the projects. The SOAR process involves the appropriations committees of each house of the legislature. So there's at least more responsibility to the voters from a diverse era, you know diverse, diverse parts of the state, both chambers of the legislature. Uh, even both parties. Uh, so it, it allows for some control to be put on the MEDC. So I thought that was an improvement in our in our processes, but I, I don't really think that the bang for the buck has proved itself out so far. And I guess I think that that's kind of typical of what's often referred to as corporate welfare, where the numbers sound sort of big and flashy, but when you think about how much the state's appropriated for the number of jobs and whatever, it doesn't actually always seem that impressive once you've kind of done the math. And I think that not only, I mean, yes, the mom and pop businesses of the state, uh, uh, often sort of look at this and say, well, there's this, you know, there's there's no equivalent program for me. 
Uh, so how am I ever going to become the major corporation that attracts these grants? I think that's a fair point. And secondly, they're, they're still, even among the larger corporations, there's still kind of a picking and choosing. And if you make mistakes there, then you've just lit, the, lit all that money on fire on behalf of the taxpayers of the state. So it's a process that I, I generally want to avoid. Um, I, I will say that the I do think that the best argument for this kind of classic economic development policy is, in my mind, it is similar to the argument that um, you might have made during the years of the Trump administration for the, the less doctrinaire approach to free, international free trade that the, that the Trump administration employed. And the reason is, well, if you want to be the, the kind of perfect free trade regime and other states don't, then they can find inefficiencies and kind of ways to take advantage of your kind of laissez-faire attitude towards trade. Uh, and harm your industries in that in that way. And so, in other words, like you, if you want to commit to being 100% free trade and no one else does, you have to, to calculate things in that context. And in this case, the, the analogy is that if Tennessee, which has other advantages, I mean, the regulatory regime is lighter than ours, their taxes are significantly lower. I don't know if their energy rates are lower. They might be. They already have the, and their weather's uh, according to some people, better. Uh, I don't think on a day like today you would think that anybody has better weather than us. It's pretty perfect out there. But, you know, some people object to, you know, They're February. paying less for heating in the winter, for sure. Yeah, that's right. So you have a state like that. And then on top of that, they, they're doing like billions of dollars of incentives a year. North Carolina was is actually probably an even stronger example. Similar weather advantages. Uh, less, I think, uh, aggressive uh, tax policy and stuff there, but but lots and lots of this, you know, what's called economic development. And so if they're doing that and we do zero of it, then whether it's really the best policy in the long run or not, uh, we're going to be at least in the short to medium term harmed uh, as jobs continue to locate outside of Michigan. And I think that that's something of a compelling argument. Again, I would analogize it to the, the kind of trade arguments. It's not that you would be rejecting uh, the idea of the free market as the optimal arrangement, but under the circumstances you're in, the fear that you might be failing your responsibility to the people of the state if you know the next major automotive project is in Tennessee, uh, as the Ford battery plant is, or in, in um, Alabama, another low-regulation, low re low-tax state, or Texas especially, where everything seems to be moving every flagship business seems to go there. If, if you have that system, then maybe you need to kind of buy yourself some time I guess what I would say is I'm sympathetic to that argument. At least I understand what makes sense about it. The difficulty is that there's no way to say, well, for this period of time, I'm going to say yes to it. And then at some other period of time, I'm going to say no to it. So I guess I consider it kind of a complex problem. And uh, I just didn't think it was really in the best interest of the people of our state to appropriate another billion dollars towards it uh, this time around. Um, and especially given some of the reporting on what projects MEDC might be planning to seek approval from the legislature for, which just, again, just the, the bang for the buck is not always there. Maybe it's not often there. And in this case, it certainly doesn't seem to be to me, and that's why I voted no. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barkham. We have Representative Fink with us. So, I mean, on this note, I mean, part of the goal of the SOAR Fund and, and other economic development incentives like that is bringing jobs to the state and certainly not losing them. One bill that got some attention recently, since we spoke last time, uh, from the Michigan Chamber of Commerce and the Small Business Association was uh, 4902, and it's dealing with state contracts specifically. So it's, it's pretty limited. When the state puts out a request for a proposal, any entity can come and say, you know, well, we'll fulfill this 
with a contract. They give a bid price and the state will then evaluate it and then pick the best lowest cost but high quality recipient. This bill would give preference to Michigan businesses and that if a Michigan business does not win that first round of bidding, Michigan businesses who did at least apply and submit a, a proposal, they would get a week to have a redo and see if they could uh, come up with the lowest price. So certainly that's a lot less expensive to the state than a, a SOAR fund and seeks to at least help with uh, unemployment and jobs. What's your thought particularly on that since since it's been making the headlines in the past few weeks? I mean, the legislature, granted, hasn't been considered on the House or Senate floor yet since it was introduced back in February of last year. Yeah, or even in committee, it looks like, yeah. Yeah, So, but, but what are, are your thoughts on proposals like this or, or even other thoughts about this issue? Because I mean, Representative Albert says, you know, well, we we want to not be spending all this money, but we also want jobs for for the people in the state. If we're not investing as a state, you know, with a billion dollars in the SOAR fund, what do we do to help with the unemployment problem? So favoring Michigan corporations um, in this case, I do think that you're right to link the, the conversation we just had about the SOAR fund stuff to this topic. I would say that uh, this would be a relatively minor impact one way or another. I think it, but my, so my concern would be that you're introducing a more or less arbitrary element into the price of something. And so what happens if you've got essentially comparable bids in terms of what you think the quality is and the lowest, you know, the cheapest company is a, an Ohio company and a Michigan company says, all right, well, we'll match it in an effort to, to get that good. Well, there was some reason but that they were more expensive before. What was the reason? Is it some... Are they just operating at a lower efficiency or something? I mean, essentially, you're, you're kind of introducing created information, you know, uh, information that's not uh, necessarily tied to reality into the marketplace. And that is the kind of thing that I think leads to market distortions that uh, lead people to kind of question whether the market itself works. I, I don't remember how much we've talked about housing policy here, but that would be that that would be an area where I would say we do this all the time. And so in a sense, this is kind of like... Um, the local government saying, as happens in some places, well, if you build new apartments, one out of every eight has got to be low income. The aspiration there is, of course, to provide low income housing and even uh, to provide low income housing uh, kind of integrated with market rate housing, which they, which I think people think will lead to greater social cohesion. And all of that sounds very nice, but it is, it's created information uh, not tied to market incentives. And so when you do that, you you definitely distort the market. And when you distort the market, you do not know what you've done. You don't know how much more expensive you've made things. You don't know how much uh, you've disassociated kind of the, the you know, the, the you've, you've broken up the matching problems that I think uh, Hayek uh, is famous for talking about. You know, the, so much of the economy is just finding the right buyer and the right seller. And so when the government kind of introduces arbitrary distinctions into the marketplace, uh, that's that's what you have. So that would be the reason to object to this, I think. A reason to consider supporting it anyway would be, and I, I guess I think that this is kind of a Kirkian perspective, we have a different kind of obligation to Michigan residents and businesses than we do to other residents and businesses, and giving them a chance to simply match the same price that we can get from a non-Michigan company empowers people of our state to take the greatest advantage of, in this case, state contracting. And I think that that's a responsible instinct. And 
it's a reason that I might say, well, I will, you know, I don't really ever intend to purchase a vehicle that's not manufactured by a Michigan-based automotive company. And sometimes friends or family will say, well, you're going to sacrifice quality or whatever. And I argue with them about that to some degree. And I also point out to them that if I buy a Ford Explorer, which is what I have right now, then the mechanism that makes the window go up and down inside the door was made in uh, Litchfield at Hilux. So my neighbors, you know, helped make the vehicle that I drive. That makes a difference to me. That's a responsible approach to kind of thinking about economic decisions. Where I get concerned about it is the scale at which the the state of Michigan spends money means that whatever those market distortions are could be significant. And the final thing I'd say is it suggests that Michigan companies need the government to do their work for them. The Michigan companies can't be competitive or maybe are just not naturally going to be as competitive as out-of-state companies or else they would submit the most competitive bids. And if they're not and there's some policy reason for that, then let's address that rather than just sort of force our way towards preferring Michigan companies. I can see the attraction of, of a policy like this, but I'm, I'm pretty darn hesitant to say I would support it. I guess I haven't talked to you besides you about it, Josh, so maybe somebody's going to point some things out to, it about it, out to me about it that, uh, that I hadn't thought of. But my initial instinct is that we should be addressing, you know, making sure Michigan companies are the most competitive because this is just the most competitive place to have a business. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for today. You've been listening to Representative Andrew Fink on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you, Josh.